HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. As you may or may not know by now, I'm the guest host of the show for the winter 2016 season. The lovely Erin Fairbanks can be found on air on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. alongside co-host Jack Inslee on HRN's Week in Review, so make sure you check it out. Today, I've got Craig Deal on the line calling in from Charleston, South Carolina. Craig is the executive chef of Cypress in Charleston and founder of the restaurant's in-house charcuterie program called the Artisan Meat Share, which offers freshly butchered meat over 80 types of charcuterie and gourmet sandwiches. Deal is passionate about preserving meat and the requisite skills of the craft from the farm to the butcher, Through a partnership with the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy and Carolina Heritage Farm, he had the opportunity to be the first chef in over 100 years to utilize the rare American guinea hog. He is also a founding member of the Butcher's Guild and a two-time James Beard nominee. Chef Craig, welcome to the Farm Report. Thank you for having me. Um, So I wanted to jump right in. and talk a little bit about the Artisan Meat Share, which is a pretty unique um, part of Cyprus. So to date, over 90 types of charcuterie have been prepared, stored, and cured in-house. Um, and I wanted you to tell me a little bit about the evolution of the Artisan Meat Share, maybe starting with your inspiration to what it is today. Oh, sure thing. Uh, so Artisan Meat Share started uh, roughly um, out of necessity of us buying whole animals and whole uh, whole beef, and having lots of pieces left over. And waste not, want not, as the chef mentality that I have goes, uh, we started curing and salting and preserving and uh, putting it up. Well, we ended up 
producing so much that we had enough that we needed to turn the room over. And uh, we said, how cool would it be if we had a little underground uh, charcuterie club? Kind of stole the idea from uh, out in San Francisco when uh, Bocaloni was getting started with um, uh, their charcuterie production through Encanto Restaurant and uh, figured, well, I think we can do that because we have more than enough um, product to be able to move. And uh, Artisan Meat Share was born. And four times a year, we uh, moved three-and-a-half-pound bags of uh, cured and smoked meats to about 100 members. Uh, Six years later, it became a brick-and-mortar location at 33 Spring, and we offer all of those wonderful, tasty bits uh, day in, day out in the form of sandwiches, fresh charcuterie, from prosciutto, culatella hams, to different spicy salamis, and uh, pâtés, and Brunschweiger liverwurst. Uh, <laughs> and and the um, list keeps going. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and I could go on and on about the different number of uh, items that we produce. But that's kind of how the, the, the program got started. And really, in a nutshell, it was all to get better meats on our menu at Cyprus. So we didn't set out to make a charcuterie program. We set out to procure and utilize some of the best animals in our region that meant tasty, tasty meat going out the front door to the diners. And uh, they embraced it, and they embraced our charcuterie program uh, really well. And... uh, and you have a brick-and-mortar location. So now, um, so you started out, like you said, just harvesting the bits that were left over um, so that you didn't have any waste happening. But so now in this rotating slate of fresh meats and the cured meats and the cooked meats and the smoked meats and the salami and all the stuff that you've got going on, um, what, like, now you must be ordering in whole animals specifically for this. So what, like, what's a little bit of the logistics? Like, walk me through the breakdown. Like, where are these animals coming from? How many? How often? What does that look like? Okay, so uh, I'll just use t- today being Thursday. Uh, usually we get our delivery from Keegan Fulham Farms on Thursdays, and not always do we buy the whole animal because not always is it conducive to do so. Um, our farmers uh, part out bits and pieces as well, so uh, they they sell loins, shoulders, bellies, hams, heads, and uh, every week they send out a, this is what we have. Yeah. Um, and I always take advantage of that where I'm like, oh, you have two shoulders and you have two loins. Uh, I don't necessarily have to always buy the whole pig. Okay. Um, but when we need to, we 100% solely do because of all the bits and pieces that we're able to accumulate off of it. Uh, we take advantage of power buys on uh, hams. Hey, this week we have eight hams. You want to sell all of them? Sure. Uh, we'll take all of them scenario. So it's uh, it's this great partnership of, of uh, um, this is what we have and this is what we're working on and uh, this is where we're going. And we work with the farmer as much as the farmer works with our needs. So it's a, it's a unique symbiotic relationship of, you know, we don't want to leave the farmer with a bunch of stuff left over. And in some cases, we try to go out of our way to help them move all of their last little bit bits. Are there certain products that um, the folks of Charleston have come to rely on you on? Like you're like, if we don't have this in-house, there's going to be a riot at our door. Or are there things you just have to convince them, like, that's not available this week, like, try this instead? 
Yeah, sometimes we run into those scenarios uh, where, unfortunately, we're out. Uh, you know, in the in the fresh meat world, which right now we are currently out of right now, our pork chops, which will be back oh, no. over there um, tomorrow because we just got a shipment of loins um, in today. And uh, we'll be cutting pork chops later on today and tomorrow to get over there to put in the case. But that's one of the fresh things. It seems everybody wants a good pork chop. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the form of um, charcuterie, it seems like we move through a tremendous amount of pate, about hmm. 80 to 85 pounds of that every three to four weeks. Yeah. And uh, that's on our um, – we have a pate melt, so kind of hence pate melt. In fun oh. terms, but um, <laughs> uh, um, that's a that's a good mover. Um, we also have a bun me, which is kind of a classic steam bun done in the style of a bun me sandwich, which is really cool. Um, so we have these wonderful little kitschy um, verbiages within the menu. We also have a knuckle sandwich on the menu, which I think is pretty cool. What is, what is the knuckle sandwich? Uh, that is the, uh, we use the hind leg of pork, the small ham off of the leg or the sirloin tip or pork knuckle. And we do a ham sandwich with uh, pimento cheese and roasted pickles and mustard. Mm, yeah. Um, so what, um, one of the other interesting things about the meat that you source besides being um, from partnerships with farms and um, obviously trying to utilize all the, the every last bit of it, um, you have a you you like to source heritage breeds. So as I mentioned in the intro, you had the opportunity to be the first chef in over a hundred years to utilize the American guinea hog, which was listed. I don't know what it was listed at the time when you started using it, but it's now currently listed as threatened by the Livestock Conservancy. They sort of have this. They do like endangered, threatened statuses for the different heritage breeds. So. A hundred years is kind of a long time between meals. So why, why now? Like, why did you want to bring this back to the plate? And maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, it kind of started with uh, let's see what pigs work best for us, and how can we u- utilize them uh, to the best of our abilities. Um, certain pigs are best for. Uh, uh, chops and roasts and things throughout our menu and other items uh, like the guinea hog which are you know rich red meat uh, high abundance of fat are best suited in utilizing our charcuterie programs so that's kind of where we um, we, we kind of say this pig's good for this this pig's good for this uh, day in day out we use um, Tamworth variety hog which we get from Keegan Fulham Farms. Uh, we also get uh, Gloucester Old Spot, American Spot Cross from Carolina Heritage. We also get the Guinea Hog from Carolina Heritage. Uh, and they're based out of Florence, South Carolina. And they're producing a lot of different heritage breed pigs, which uh, Gray Moore is the uh, the gentleman I partnered up with to bring back the, the guinea hog. He was actually raising them, and Slow Foods approached me about utilizing it. And... Um, it was a pig that I actually became fond of at loving, but slowly realized why it was becoming a endangered species. Yeah, so in terms of like this whole conservation ethic when it comes to food, it's like you have to eat it to save it. And that's true of the, the heritage seeds, the heirloom seeds, as well as the heritage breed. So why is this pig, why, why do you think it uh, slowly drifted off our dinner plates? Well, the the crazy conundrum of this pig, and I call it a conundrum because normally a pig would be 
75% meat, 25% fat uh, off of the whole carcass after you take away the skin and bone. Um, this was a pig that, that yielded out at full-size maturity of about a year old, a 140-pound carcass. Um, 65% of it was fat and 45% of it was meat. So unless you're really embracing lard and all of the attributes of it, uh, you could buy one guinea hog and one large beef and basically make hot dogs and all these other wonderful things. But um, the synopsis was if we didn't fill up fryers, if we didn't make lard for biscuits, if we didn't use uh, uh, the fat to make andouille and other spreadable fatty salamis, this was never going to work out for us. So kind of um, I call it the conundrum because it was like, well, okay, we, we're not selling the meat. We're now selling fat. Yeah. So, but you, And um, you the still... general population, I wouldn't say, is really overly into buying huge amounts of fat. Um, but um, we're, tr- we're trying to change that. What are some of the things that you think would help change the general population's um, leaning towards using more fat in their cooking? Do you think it's just a matter of them tasting it and getting familiar with it? or? Um, yeah, I think uh, the more reports that we see that um, uh, cooking with lard is actually m- from healthy pigs and pasture-raised pigs is better for you than uh, the, um, the overly processed um, canola oils and other items out there, hydrogenated uh, um, vegetable shortenings and whatnot. I'd much rather use lard. And I think it's, we used to do this. And then we got away from it during the, uh, the, the Industrial Revolution, and now chefs are kind of spawning the creative of getting back to using these pigs, uh, you know, having a pork chop that has fat on it that's super moist and super delicious. Uh, and, um, you know, basically leading the charge in it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that, and hopefully we turn people on to, you know, not only is it better for you, but it tastes really good, too. Um, So what are some of the, you mentioned, like, the Tamworth um, and the Gloucestershire and the American Spot. So why do you think some of these other heritage breeds are maybe more readily accessible to the revival um, in our cuisine? Well, the, the uh, okay, so we, we talk about the guinea hog, and the loin on the guinea hog is about the size of a, the loin on a lamb rack. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very small muscle group, but it's also covered by an inch and a half to two inches of fat, yeah. which is, at the same time, the same size as the loin itself um, that covers it. So when you cut a pork chop, you're looking at it, and you're like, okay, well, they have to buy the fat and the meat unless I'm going to trim all this fat off, and then I have to find a use for the fat. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the, uh, the, the Tamworth and the, um, the Gloucestershire Old Spot, American Spot Cross, the loins are the same size as what we would generally see if we were shopping in a grocery store, where they are nice, large loins, beautiful big pork chops. The difference is, is that the meat is really, really rich and red, uh, which is not the other white meat that we've heard pork related to for the past, uh, what is it, 30, 40 years now? Yeah, the, the pork uh, lobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. You know, you look at, uh, you look at this American spot 
um, Gloucestershire Old Spot cross, and when you cut it, it slowly blooms out red. You're like, oh my gosh, it almost looks like beef. beef. It's so yeah, red. yeah. Um, so, and you found um, in working with these farmers, I find it interesting. So you found that um, while the the smaller pig, the guinea hog, is well suited maybe for some of your charcuterie needs and for your um, uh, if you wanted to do any rendering or fat-based products, but why do you know, do you happen to know in the farmer that you're working with, why they're interested in cultivating this animal on their farm? Is it surely for conservation or do they have an attribute that lends better well, to the farm environment? Well, I, I know that um, uh, for two reasons. One, Graymore is part of uh, um, uh, conservation uh, and different, you know, whether it's uh, uh, forestry conservation or his heritage crops and uh, pigs that he's raising for conservation, that's that's kind of part of his business as well. But at the same time, it was uh, let's see if we can create a pig that everybody loves and desires mm. that is potentially easy to work with in the restaurant. And if you get these pigs at seven to eight months, they're going to weigh 75 to 80 pound carcass size, which is easily um, accessible for anybody in their kitchen to uh, to work with. Yeah. And you can fit it right on me, your that counter. Was, that was the best size where it wasn't overly aggressive with fat. But the downside to that was is that I would have had to buy two or three of them at a time. In order to get the volume of meat that you needed. Exactly. So then you're like, well, if I just buy one big pig and get it all done, I don't have to buy three small pigs that would take three times the amount of time. And what about the flavor in terms of the the Tamworth versus, I mean, the, the fat probably um, influence, the fat content is going to influence the flavor to some degree, but what, are you noticing any differences in taste between these breeds? So the, the flavor on the guinea hog is absolutely one of the tastiest pigs ever. Now, what we've tried <laughs> to do at the same time is, uh, is focus on feed from this farmer and uh, whether he raises guinea hogs or the Gloucestershire Old Spot, American Spot Cross, or um, uh, Berkshires or anything else, if we buy three pigs from this farmer, they've all been raised on the same uh, feed and grain source and pasture raised, that they're all going to taste similar. Yeah. So what we then do is we have a charcuterie pig that we're able to take bits and pieces from this other hog and put with it and then use this high-end, super flavorful fat from the guinea hog and introduce into it and get the best of both worlds. So we're utilizing everything left over from these large framed pigs that produce a lot of meat, and we're using this wonderful, luscious fat um, from the guinea hog and putting it all together and having an outcome of the best of both worlds. Yeah. But, it will, but it really takes two to three full-size pigs to consume one of these small pigs uh, and really influence all of your charcuterie at the same time. But very slightly would anybody other than a trained pallet ever pick up on, oh, that's guinea hog yeah. or, oh, that's old spot. They'd pick up on man, this pig is, you know, it's, all of these pigs are super flavorful from the feed in which they're given, which is, uh, that's where it starts. It starts with great breed and great feed. Yeah. 
and yeah so it's mostly it they're gonna know someone eating it is gonna know that it's raised well and that it's worlds above the supermarket pork but they're not gonna be necessarily gonna be picking out that this is one variety versus the other um, correct well it's interesting that i that definitely is a conundrum that it takes three um large pigs to make use of one small pig <laughs> in your in your With system the amount of fat that it has yeah, yeah yeah so we can see why it's been a hundred years between those meals maybe um and we got to bring back some lard um so we're just about um, in time for a short station break. When we return, we're going to dig into the upcoming Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which, ha- which is happening in March. Um, so we'll see you in a few minutes. I was in the The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. You're tuned into the Farm Report. Joining us today is Chef Craig Deal, Executive Chef of Cypress and Artisan Meat Share in Charleston, South Carolina. Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about their charcuterie program and some of the heritage breeds that they utilize. And now we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, Heritage Radio Network is doing some pre-conference coverage or pre-event coverage of the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which is going to be held in Charleston in March um, the 2nd to the 6th. Um, and we're excited to hear a little bit more about that straight from one of the participants. Um, the event brings together local and guest chefs, wine and beer experts, all with an eye towards celebrating the flavors of the region. Um, and Craig, you're collaborating on a couple of the dinners throughout the event, and I would love to hear more about um, your perspective on, I mean, it, the event says it features low-country cuisine, and so what kind of things are you going to be bringing to the table? 
Uh, well, it brings up a, a, a lot of fun things that we always look forward to every year. Uh, the um, Usually more of the um, uh, classic Charleston staples being uh, fish, seafood, grits, collards, things of that nature, slow-cooked items, lots of smoked items. Um, one, of the, the, one of the events we're doing this year is Feast and Fire on Goat Island, uh, lots of fiery cookery, um, and utilizing uh, local farmers at the same time. So uh, I can't really narrow it down to what we're cooking because I didn't really create a menu. <laughs> yeah. But I I am extremely excited about, uh, um, you know, it's an event every year that we always look forward to. Uh, we're excited to have uh, this year uh, Jamie Bissonette from uh, Toro Copa in Boston and um, Toro in New York City with us for our uh, um, our big uh, um, Cypress Center that we're doing here on Thursday night, um, which was, uh, um, you know, I tried to get him to come down last year, and he was in Australia, but um, this oh. year we're lucky enough to get him. It's uh, Wednesday, March 2nd, and um, I think that's going to be an unbelievable evening, lots of great food. Um yeah, and then uh, a whole a whole few days dedicated to just food and wine sounds like it couldn't couldn't end badly. So, <laughs> yeah, if you like food, if you like wine, <laughs> if you like spirits and cocktails, uh, and of course, how could you not love Charleston? The uh, the wine and food festival every year is a great way to uh, experience a lot of the city and a lot of the food culture that we have here. Um. So what are, um, in, in leading up to the festival, we're kind of taking um, a, some, we're looking at some certain questions in particular, like taking a look at how chefs interface with food today and what defines your generation of chefs. So you're, you've been nominated twice for a James Beard Award. Um, so I feel like you might be a good person to tap into. Like what's, um, yeah, what's going on in your generation of chefs and what mark have you been working on leaving into the, in the food world? Yeah, really, it comes down to um, food with flavor, you know, seasoned well, uh, good flavor profiles. Uh, you know, the, one of the big things anymore is really what is American food? It is a melting pot of uh, global in- influences from all over the globe. Uh, we happen to be sitting right here in Charleston where, uh, you know, grits, rice, um, pork kind of reigns supreme, yeah. uh, along with uh, beans and other heirloom varieties of uh, uh, vegetables um, have been com- come to known in this area, along with, uh, you know, I think everybody's kind of uh, synonymous with other certain ingredients being southern staples, smoked ham, uh, okra, things of that nature. But... Um, you know, it's just as exciting, you know, whether you want to call Charleston being the the melting pot, but um, uh, we we focus our cuisine on uh, southern varieties with globally inspired cuisine. So it could be some Asian, some Italian, some Korean, you know, um, German from my background. Um, but just kind of all influencing the menu across the board without it being this, it's Southern in your face or American in your face type of cuisine. 
Um, so you just alluded to your background as having some German heritage in it. So maybe we could talk a little bit about um, your influences and in cooking. And in particular, um, I'm interested in your how you got to your craft butcher skills as well. <laughs> sure thing. Um, so I grew up in Danville, Pennsylvania, and uh, I enjoyed cooking. I cooked with my mom. Um, growing up and really, really in, enjoyed it. Uh, my grandfather had a 90-acre farm where uh, the family would grow corn and uh, beans and greens and watermelon and cantaloupe. And the whole family participated in not only growing but harvesting and picking and selling and uh, freezing. And um, uh, another uncle had a butcher shop and um, uh, we would always end up migrating towards the butcher shop for where, you know, our meats and, and things would come from. But at the same the, time... This sounds very uh, wholesome. The country butcher shop also um, processed game during game season. Yeah. So it was always a, you know, my dad would always kind of take us around the back and say, hey, we got an inside report that somebody shot this really big buck during deer season. Come down and check, you know, I want to show it to you if we're going to go in the back door. So it was kind of the, uh, the here's where your food comes from at an early age. Yeah, I mean, up I've close and personal. Pictures when we were kids uh, standing in front of uh, uh, deer that my dad had, had shot, um, uh, a bear that a family relative had shot, and um, it, it it kind of migrated towards the butcher shop because that's where these things ended up before you got them back to fill up your freezer. Yeah. So uh, it is a, a very interesting um, uh, synopsis of where I've come from and where where the where my background of food came from, and I never really thought about it until I was actually running the kitchen here at Cypress. You know, what else would I have done? I, I can't think of anything else because food was all around me. And it's no reason why I, I didn't pick the food industry to go into, even though none of my family members are you know, professional chefs, cooks, anything of that nature. But I will always say mom was the best cook ever. <laughs> um, so in the kitchen at Cypress, so you started honing in on your butcher skills while you were working there or how did that come into play yeah absolutely i always loved working with meat um you know which kind of you know we would break down uh um deer and stuff in the garage when we didn't take them to the butcher shop but um when i went to college it was uh you know very very short um butcher skills in in the college classrooms and i always longed for more of that and when uh, i started working at magnolia's um uh, occasionally I would go back and uh, help out doing some different butchery work and whatnot. And then uh, w one of the butchers left, and I was like, oh, I'll slide in there and do it. And I did that for about six, seven months, and I loved it. And it, it's not what you can do with the product that you're cutting, but what can you do with the pro byproduct of what you've cut and how can you utilize that. And next thing you know, you're making... Um, some of the byproduct tastes better than the original intended cut. Yeah. And um, well, that's there, what there, and off great creativity. Yeah, and there's the whole art of whether, like, you know, when you're breaking it down in order to make certain, you can you have to, like, pick and choose. Like, when you're breaking down the animal, you can you can have one of this cut in some ways or 
two of this cut. Like you can't always get um, everything that you want out of it. Like there's only, um, I'm trying to think of an example um, where you're, maybe you have one for me. Uh, so an example would be um, every side of the pig is identical. So if you split it all the way down the middle, you're always going to have two cuts. Mm. Now on beef, the hanging tender is removed from the carcass before the carcass is split because it's the only cut on the beef where there is one. Because mm-hmm. if, if it got cut in half, it doesn't necessarily, you, there'd be, um, you, you'd basically ruin it. You'd yeah. cut half of one and half and half of the other one and half. But it is a symmetrical, you know, every, every beef has two cheeks, but it only has one tongue. Um, kind of scenario uh it has two loins two ribeyes two um two tenderloins two hams and uh what okay so you've you've done this with with the original intended cut for um you know uh, i say uh you know trimming out a a ribeye now what do you do with the excess bone and fat that you're not using or roasting how can you make flavorful things out of it yeah you make stocks and you make uh you render out the beef fat with garlic and herbs and you whip it with butter to baste other steaks and stuff that you you know so that you know beef tenderloin doesn't have to just taste flavorless because there's no fat you've roasted fat from the rest of the animal and and made this wonderful compound butter to put on it and now you're introducing rich roasted beef fat back to it and making it taste unlike a beef tenderloin should. And people are like, why does it taste so different? <laughs> it's the little things along the way that um, really make the food that much tastier. And whether it's creativity or whether it's the waste-not-want-not mentality, we've already paid for it. Now we need to use it and harness its potential. It takes more work to use your byproduct than it does to use just your your intended cut but that's where all the fun is yeah um and it takes it might take more work to use your byproduct but it's less work than getting more meat off the farm so it's better like you said the waste not want not to bring that back in so you 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 obviously care a lot about the craft and that parlays into one of your community roles you're one of the founding members of the Butcher's Guild, which is a community for meat professionals who believe that good meat can change the world as part of their mission. So we, to have good meat, we've, we've identified that we need good farmers that are raising good breeds on good feed, and we also need these skilled butchers. So how, um, how is the Butcher's Guild, or maybe in uh, another program, how are we facilitating these future butchers? Because there's so many... Um, you know, there's we've seen the decline in the United States of slaughterhouses and butchers. Like I, I know in Maine, where I lived for a number of years, um, there people are driving their pigs or their cows halfway across the state because there's so few slaughterhouses. So that's um, just endemic of you know we've transitioned out of some of these artisanal skills. So how are we facilitating future butchers? Yeah, it's a it's a dying breed, a dying art. You know, as I mentioned earlier, with the uh, onslaught of the industrial revolution, as soon as meat could get uh, fabricated in large quantities and put into a box and put into a refrigerated uh, rail car or in a uh, refrigerated packing truck to get shipped across the United States, those jobs of these small you know community butchers started to become obsolete. 
you know, even if you look in your grocery store anymore, that butcher has become obsolete because they're even packaging stuff in the little polystyrene styrofoam package plastic wrapped containers. Um, and you don't even see somebody back there cutting anymore, which is which yeah. is sad. So where do where do these uh, where do people go to learn these skills from? And for me, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, I just wanted to see better meat get on the on the plate on the menu. And in the long run, what it created was uh, it created us to be a better butcher out of economics because if you can't get those cuts you're not going to be doing it for long. You'd, you'd almost be uh, um, wasting more and producing more sausage that really doesn't hold the same value as selling a pork chop on a fine dining menu would be, um, or other creative things. So it's uh, um, not only creativity, but um, you know, the art of how can we get this, how can we maximize our profits, and how can we keep the field of butchery alive to where people want to continue to do it and um uh i've done i guess i've done enough of uh the the butchering on my own that you know people look to me as a as a valued source to uh to educate how do you get it how do you do it and really i could show it a thousand times but the end result is you have to get in there with your hands and get dirty to start um, to start that practice yourself, and that's how I learned. Was uh, you know I used YouTube a lot um, uh, to see what, what people were cutting, how they were getting these cuts, yeah, and train myself. And because uh, once again, you know, who do you who do you ask? Who do you get advice from? Um, but I think there is more of a resurgence. There is more, um, you know, and with the Butcher's Guild at, at uh, doing the things that they do to help kind of facilitate. Here's a group of culinary professionals or butcher professionals that we can network and educate. You know, if you have a question, go ahead and ask, because these are the people that will that want to see it progress. We want to see these uh, these craft trades come back. And in the in the long run, um, not only you know seeing butchery come back, but the art of better meat, better quality meat, and uh, the utilization of all of it leading to better tasting uh, food products coming from it. Yeah, I was seeing that you had just done. It looked like on the um, Butchers Guild, you had done like a charcuterie master class webinar. So that's one way people are. are it seems yeah, like. Wh- Exactly. So whether you're not able to, uh, you know, it's like uh, kind of like what we're doing right now where um, you ask questions and I give advice as to what I would do or how I would do it. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, a lot of the uh, the members got to type in, uh, hey, I have a question. I want to see what his, his response to this would be. What works for me not work, work might not work for everyone. But uh, I think the, the general synopsis of here is a good educational um, forum for what what we're doing and how we do it and um, you know may spawn off the you know I'm, I'm interested I'll try it and we'll see if it, if we can make it go at it and you know who knows it may be uh, completely addictive and next thing you know you're hooked yeah um, well we're coming to the close of another episode of the farm report thanks everyone for listening Craig it was great to have you on the line today to find out more about Cypress and the artisan meat share visit cypresscharleston.com 
hit up Charleston Wine and Food online at charlestonwineandfood.com. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening